heavenly resume, he preached from the back of a pickup. Gives a whole new meaning to the uh, term, the Sermon on the Mount. Every message that I prepare is uh, difficult, usually because God causes me to look at areas of my life that I really don't want to get into. And this message today is no different. But in the end, it has helped me, and I just hope that uh, and pray that at some point it will help you as well. The scripture for today's message comes from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath and make it all the nations that I and make all the nations that I am sending you to drink from it. It will drink, stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword that I am sending among them. This morning, I'd like for us to briefly walk through some of the events that occurred during Holy Week. We won't spend much time at most of them, just long enough to take a brief snapshot before we move on to the next. Let's first go to the upper room. The Passover meal, the Jewish Seder, what Christians normally refer to as the Last Supper. On the night when Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room celebrating the feast of the Passover, they were remembering God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. And through the sharing of this meal, they were celebrating that event. Each part of the meal symbolized a different aspect of the journey from slavery to freedom. Every Jew was familiar with the rituals involved in the meal because they had participated in it since infancy. It was as familiar to them as the Lord's Prayer is to us. As part of the ceremony, participants would drink from four cups of wine. The third cup was called the cup of salvation or the cup of redemption. When it came time for this cup, Jesus took it and blessed it, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples because it was here that Jesus moved away from the traditional Passover format that they were so familiar with. It was here that Jesus inserted part of the Jewish engagement ceremony. It was the custom in the first century that when a young man became engaged to a young woman, 
he would offer her a cup of wine and say, I love you. I want to marry you. And I'm prepared to give my life for you. Now, the young lady at this point had two options. She could refuse the cup and thereby refuse his offer. Or she could take it and drink from it. And by drinking the wine, she was saying to the young man, I love you. I want to marry you. And I accept your offer. When Jesus offered his disciples the cup of salvation, he was saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And in effect, he was saying, I love you. I give my life for you. Will you give me your life in return? Do you see how incredibly personal this makes the Lord's Supper? When we take the communion cup and drink from it, we are saying to God, I love you, and I'm willing to give my life to you. Toward the end of the Passover meal, there was a fourth cup, often referred to as the cup of God's protection. Matthew tells us in his gospel that after the disciples celebrated the third cup, the cup of salvation, Jesus said, I tell you from this moment on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom with you. He was refusing the cup of God's protection. After singing the Psalms, Jesus and his disciples went out and crossed the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. So let's go to Gethsemane. It was here that Mark tells us that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Historian Ray Vanderlyn says that the term deeply distressed can be translated as a sudden, shocking awareness. Jesus fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. What cup was Jesus referring to? I think it was the cup referred to in Jeremiah the cup of God's wrath. For years, rabbis had debated and argued whether this cup should be included in the Passover celebration. After years of wrangling, they decided that they couldn't decide. They said, we'll wait until Elijah comes again, and then he will decide for us. In a mystery that I don't fully understand, but which I believe, Jesus was both fully human and, at the same time, fully divine. 
It seems here that in his humanity, Jesus suddenly began to comprehend the full implication of the cross. He begins to experience the awful agony, the profuse sweating as drops of blood, his repeated cries and supplications. He was going to have to drink that cup, the fifth cup, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus would not only suffer physical pain, humiliation, and death, but even worse, he would bear the weight of the sins of the whole world. He would become our sin bearer. He would take the punishment for your sin and for mine. And he drank the cup, all of it, the cup of God's wrath. Most churches today tend to downplay the respect of God. In 1973, J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, to an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will. The church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. We regard sin lightly. We tend to hide its ugliness. We even make excuses for it and call it by different names. Today, wrath with a loss of self-control, an outburst, an irrational response associated with wounded pride or a bad temper. These characteristics us as humans, but it would be a gross misrepresentation of the attribute of God's wrath. Even though we are created in the image of God, that does not mean that the limitations and imperfections belonging to us sinful creatures also holy. God's love never leads him to foolish, impulsive actions in the same way that we are led to do. And in the same way, God's wrath is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, or morally irresponsible. Instead, it is his right and necessary reaction to evil. If God did not hate and sin, how could he be holy, perfect, and just? We need to be careful that we are not creating an image of God within our own thoughts that are patterned after our own evil inclinations. We fear the righteous judgment of a holy God, for Jesus took upon himself the wrath that are right, rightfully ours. His invitation is bestowed in love. The invitation is for us to come 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To those who refuse his invitation, the Lamb will appear as the fierce Lion of Judah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God's love extended all the way to the cross. That love would not have been possible had it not been for God's wrath. A hatred of sin so great that he sent his sinless and perfect Son, who by his sacrificial death conquered sin forever. Look at us. Look at our sin, our brokenness, our pain, our despair, our fears, our greed, and our selfishness. In the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who suffered at the hands of the Soviet communists, puts it this way. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not through classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. There's only one answer that changes the human heart. No government, no business, no educational institution can change our hearts. Only Jesus Christ can conquer sin, save souls, and change lives. And through changed lives, God can transform the world. We've spent enough time here. Let's move on to Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull. A.W. Tozer said that the cross is the lightning rod of grace that short circuits God's wrath and directs it to Christ so that only the light of his love remains for believers. Jesus was crucified not in a cathedral between two crosses, but on a cross between two thieves. The Romans developed crucifixion as a slow, agonizing, and humiliating form of death. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sins, and would die with the wicked at the hands of the wicked. Temple sacrifices in Jerusalem always began at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A priest would climb to the high point of the temple and blow the shofar as a signal that the beginning of the afternoon sacrifice was about to begin. Messianic Jews say that after the high priest finished the sacrifice for Passover in the temple, the priest would look up at the end of the ceremony and say, it is finished. The Bible tells us that at the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus 
Lamb of God looked up from the cross and said, It is finished. Signifying that his work was complete. But the cross wasn't the end, rather it was the means to an end. Let's complete our tour at the empty tomb. Between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of Christ. We live in the shadow of the cross between the wrath of God and the love of God. Fortunately for us, there is also an empty tomb in the shadow of the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, God's plan of salvation was complete. The resurrection confirmed it. The resurrection was God's seal of approval that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted. It was June 18, 1815, and the Battle of Waterloo was underway. The French under Napoleon were fighting the Allies, the British, the Dutch, and the Germans, under the command of Wellington. A British ship stationed in the middle of the English harbor relayed Cephamore signals to a signalman, signalman stationed in the tower of Winchester Cathedral. From there, messages were relayed through other signalmen on hilltops all the way to London and throughout England. Late in the day, the ship signaled two words, Wellington defeated. And then one of those fogs, which England is so notorious for, rolled in. The two-word message traveled all the way to, throughout England. And the weather was dark and gloomy, and that wasn't all. Several hours after that, the fog lifted as quickly as it had come in. And the message was transmitted again. Wellington defeated the enemy. Suddenly, the mood of the country changed. Great shouts of rejoicing were heard. Sorrow had turned to joy, and victory replaced defeat. There was a day about 2,000 years ago when they took the body of Jesus down off the cross and placed him in a borrowed tomb. The women and the disciples probably said, everything is ended. All hope is gone. Sin and Satan have won the day. But then three days later, the fog lifted the tomb was empty, and Jesus had risen from the dead. The resurrection follows the crucifixion, but it does not erase it. Although the cross has indeed taken away the sting of death, and Christ has borne our pain, our burden is that we would follow him. We will drink 
from the cup from which he drank. Vance Havner has said, we need men and women of the cross with the message of the cross bearing the marks of the cross. As Christians, we are to take up our cross and follow him. The good news is that Jesus has gone before us. We are to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus to follow wherever he takes us. The challenge is to follow so closely that we are covered with his dust. How dusty are you? In the Middle East during the time of Jesus and even today, family life often revolves around food. In fact, the evening meal could last well into the night. During the meal, members and guests would leave the table for periods of time before returning to resume their eating. Thus, a commonly followed custom was to fold your napkin at your place setting. This was a signal to the servers that you were planning to return and that they should not clear your spot. Once you had finished with no intention of returning, you would crumple your napkin so the servers knew that they could now clear your spot at the table. And so, Peter came and emptied, entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, the napkin covering the head not lying with the linen wrappings. But neatly folded in a place by itself. Jesus was letting everybody know his intention to return. And when Jesus comes again, it will not be as a baby, but as a king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.